Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to go. Let's give a warm Tulare County uh, welcome to our featured speaker, Vivian. I'm Vivian and I am an alcoholic. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Um, I don't even know where I'm going to start. My sobriety date is March 17th of 1985. It was not planned that way because that is St. Patrick's Day. Um, I have to say from the beginning and from the get-go, I did not grow up to be an alcoholic. And here I am, I am an alcoholic. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And then I heard my son speak tonight, and I've never heard him speak before. So this is uh, an experience all over in a whole lot of ways, and it brings up a whole lot of feelings. Um, when I got here, I was helpless, hopeless, and worthless. That was my perception, and perception to me is everything. My life, uh, there's a woman in Fresno who has a lot of years, and she always describes herself as a garden variety drunk. And that's all I am, is a garden variety drunk. I didn't do anything special or exceptional because I got here thinking I had all the differences going on and didn't know anything about similarities. Uh, I, I came into this world in San Antonio, Texas many years ago um, and uh, uh, my dad was in the military and we went to exciting places like Olathe, Kansas, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, oh, and Olathe, Nebraska. So anyway, it just was crazy. Um, you know, you learned how to march around and do what you thought you needed to do, and I thought we had a pretty normal life. I didn't discover how abnormal it really was until many years later when I was many years more sober. Um, and we moved around, and then we finally moved. Uh, we got to uh, um, Palo Alto, East Palo Alto in California when I was nine years old. And I felt different. I always felt different. First of all, I was a fat little kid. Um, uh, I, I, had, I was left-handed and red-headed. And I thought that all those things were already working against me in life, and I never fit in. I never fit in. Um, uh, you know, when you were going on the team for any kind of sports or school, I'd be the last one to be picked because no one wanted me. You didn't want to lose because you knew you had me on your team. And I, uh, and I just had all these crazy thoughts as a kid that um, I wasn't worth much um, and I didn't know what, I had no idea what that was about. I will say here too that I did not know I was alcoholic for a very long time. I did not start drinking actually until I was 16 years old. We were living in Reno, Nevada. I finished my, I did my junior and senior year in Reno. And, um, and I learned how to drink there. And I would drink while I babysat for this um, uh, uh, professor at, at Reno uh, uh, at the university there. And then uh, met boys and had all of that. And my first love, which was my, became, he eventually became my first husband. Um, you know, it was a crazy thing because alcohol did something for me. It gave me a personality. I didn't think I had any personality, and I figured that nobody really cared to be around me. And I became the life of the party. I wanted to all that attention. 
Um, I have no idea where all that craving came from, but when that alcohol hit me, it didn't care. I didn't care what it tasted like. It was mostly nasty tasting, but it wasn't about the alcohol. It was about the effect that it gave me. It turned me into someone different, and it made me feel different. I thought it was making me feel good, and I thought I was drinking to have fun. I started out a drink to have fun. And in the end, I was drinking to live and living to drink. But it took me 21 years of that to go from one side to the other. And uh, at high school, um, and my dad moved, moved us to Fresno, California. I have no idea why. Uh, he became an IRS agent and came here. And, um, and I was very unhappy and very miserable and let him know it. And I eventually, I just left. I left and ran away to that boy I'd met in Reno so we could get married. And I was um, 18 years old, 19 years old. And um, things happened in Reno. His father, his stepfather was the head of a union. So I got to do things like go-go dance at the Mace Hotel. And I wasn't even of age. And do things that I shouldn't do. Um, I was told by an older woman at that time that I was a pink and white girl and I was so pissed off. I was angry that um, I wanted to be bad. I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to be bad. And um, so I did everything that I could. And then I got pregnant. I got pregnant with my uh, first son who now lives in uh, close to Dallas, Texas. And, um, and that uh, kind of changed things. But you see, I'm an alcoholic woman, and, um, and I didn't have a lot of maternal instincts. And we wound up moving to a little town so he could do construction work in Cedarville, California, which is way up on the border of California, Oregon, and what, Washington? All up right in that little corner. And uh, the biggest thing you did every day was walk to the post office to get your mail. And uh, our next door neighbor was a man and his wife, who was uh, 16 or 17, uh, and he had just come from Vietnam. So we drank with them on a real regular basis. And, um, and uh, that young woman taught me a lot of things that I didn't know anything about. Life was absolutely, it was in full speed, and I did not know it. All I wanted to do was drink. And before we left Reno, uh, my husband's brother uh, was a year older than him, and he was married, and we would drink every weekend and get drunk, and they would go beat themselves bloody, and we thought we had a good time. We would go home and pass out and do it again the next day, and then go to work and do what we did during the week, and then come back and, and um, uh, what insane things. I mean, I look back now, uh, I feel like more than a cat with nine lives. Uh, of course, I will insert here, I've been married six times, <laughs> so that might have part of, to do with it. Um, but uh, I don't know, I don't know what growing up was. All I know is I had parents that did not drink, and I thought they were dull, boring, and glum, which is part of my motivation to leave Fresno. At the time I did, uh, I had gone to one year of Fresno City College, and um, I just wasn't having fun, and I didn't want to be watched. I wanted to go do what I wanted to do, what don't you know? And I wanted to do it on my terms, and I certainly did that for 21 years. Um, 
with that man. Uh, once I was pregnant, he wanted to dress up like a woman and make up his face, and I did not know what was going on. The pink, the pink and white girl came out, and I had no idea what was happening. And I thought there was something the matter with me. I couldn't be much of a woman. Something's really wrong here. I wound up uh, uh, getting an attorney within two years of that marriage and leaving and winding up calling my father in the middle of the night saying that I had to go because he, uh, the attorney I had put me in a motel that was very scary on the outskirts of town and I had a baby with me and um, there were scary people at this motel and I knew I couldn't make it. I had gone to work one day, I worked at Safeway at the Checker and I came home and the baby wasn't there because I had been leaving him with the people that ran the place and they were gone. And thank God there was a policeman and his wife who were staying there while their home was being built. They had my son. And um, so that was a sign, but it wasn't enough of anything to tell me anything about myself. All I knew was that the father that I thought I didn't like, I called in the middle of the night. And I, because of my relationship with him and me being the eldest of two girls, I was, has always made clear to me that um, I was not a, a boy and I never felt accepted by him. But I called him that night and by God, he said, I'll be there. He drove all night to come from Fresno to Reno to get me and the baby. And um, so that was different. And at the same time, you know, it, you can't ever go home again. It's tough to go home when you're a drunk and you have a child and you got a sister there that's kind of crazy and it's just, there's nothing comfortable about any of that, especially when you think you can't drink in front of them and you can't do anything. And then one day I had gone to work for Rogers when it was downtown, down in the Manchester Mall, if you know where that is in Fresno, and it was a woman's dress shop and above was a children's store. And I went to work there for a lady named Patty Bauer. Um, uh, her Bauer was her husband and her Bauer's sporting goods in Fresno. And um, I worked for her. I got a call from my mother one day that something was wrong with the baby. And um, Michael was having a seizure and I didn't know. Um, and we went to a doctor here in Fresno and uh, found out that he had um, hydrocephalus water on the brain. And it wasn't noticed at first but he was about 18 months old. And part of that story is, is that the, the pediatrician would tell me uh, that I needed to calm down and maybe a glass of brandy would be good. Maybe it would be, but I said not at my parents' house. So I would drink when I could, away when I went to school, and I would do all the things that I could do. And uh, then one day at work, this gentleman came in looking for clothes for his daughter and said, haven't I seen you at a party? I didn't know, and, uh, but it was on, and that was my second husband. <laughs> he became my second husband, uh, which is got that. <laughs> and so anyway, it's just, uh, you know, you look at the stuff you did and how it happened, and uh, that marriage became uh, very violent. There was a lot of domestic violence. He did not drink, but I did. I drank whenever I could at every social occasion. Uh, I'd bring down what would be in the refrigerator and then go by and replace it and drink that down so it would always match. 
I was always trying to have it match, right? Rather than trying to hide stuff, I knew to find it, you know, and, um, and I was always trying to please. I just wanted everything to be okay. I wanted to have a home, a family. I, I just, I wanted it all, and I didn't know how. I didn't know how to live, and I didn't even know that. Because in those crazy days, I would run out of the house in my nightgown in the middle of the night, breaking the windows out of the garage. Get in the car and drive all the way up to Huntington Lake, come all the way back, and then pass out. I don't know how I wasn't ever stopped. Um, but at the same time, whenever I would go to the hospital for dislocated shoulders, and the nurses would beg me to, to uh, say what happened, uh, and admit I had a problem, I would not do that. You know, I am one of those people that at all costs you must look good, for God's sake. And I probably looked bad most of the time and just didn't know it. And then, and I always worked. Work was an ethic that my dad taught me, that you had to work to make a living, to pay the bills, and I had to drink. I had to drink. And I wound up uh, going into the advertising and public relations business. You know, it's a great business. You drink every time you turn around. And uh, uh, and I worked uh, downtown, and I would go, and I would drink, and I would drink at noon, and many times I couldn't go back to work in the afternoon. I was so drunk. I would be so bad, I would have to go home. And you know what was really crazy in those years? People did not fire me. I left. And it's just like the relationship. I left. And in that second marriage, uh, Scott was born in 1972, and I was absolutely crazy. Did not know it. Did not know I was alcoholic yet. And um, as uh, time went on, and I left that marriage, and I went into, uh, I was working at Montgomery Ward, when it still existed at Crystal, and I met husband number three, he was a radio salesman. And he drank like I dreamed of. And I, it was on. And he had two boys, and I had two boys. And you know, I fought for custody of both of those children. And um, we got together, and it was absolutely crazy because the drinking was on all of the time, all of the time. And one of the examples is uh, that my children, my parents lived in Fresno at the time, and they lived off of Kings Canyon and Temperance. And uh, we would get drunk every Friday at the advertising agency. You know, I was the one that had the office that was called the, um, I was called the rum runner, and all the booze was in my office. And I had booze in my car, in my, in my office, in the drawer, in the file drawers, and I would buy all of it, and then we would party. We'd close the office at noon and party. And um, that one day I picked up the boys from my parents. I am shocked that they did not know how drunk I was. And I, we lived at Barstow and Temperance, which was a straight shop across town. There are stop signs that I did not use. And, uh, and when we flew into that circular driveway, all I remember was my head falling forward to that steering wheel and my husband saying, what happened? Well, and the next time you do that, I'll come, I'll leave my job, and I'll follow you home. That was the solution. It had nothing to do with how much I had had to drink and the fact that I was drunk off my ass and I had those children in danger. I don't know, um, you know, I look back, I look into this program and I, you hear that thing about God has done for me what I can't do for myself. 
He has constantly done that for me. He did that for me a lot of years before I knew I was alcoholic. Because by the grace of God, I've been a lot. I was able to live through that. To tell you about it. I, um, I remember that back in those early days too when I worked at Montgomery Ward, I remember being thrown out of the silver dollar for dancing on the table. Um, all those fun things that, you know, you think you're having fun and you want to be part of. Um, and being a woman in the advertising business was tough because there were more men and you had to prove yourself somehow. I don't really know that I know what I was doing. And I just know that when that third marriage came around, and I really do believe that that man loved me, he died about a year and a half ago, I understand from. Um, but it was in that marriage that I had gone to work for Fresno Cable TV, and there was a gentleman there who was going, he said, to drunk school. He was coming to AA meetings. And he told me that's what I needed to do. But instead, I would go home and tell my husband, your drinking is bothering me. Your drinking is destroying everything. And as soon as I say that, of course, I have to have a drink. And uh, I joined Al-Anon. And that was in 1980. I started going to Al-Anon. I became the secretary of the meetings. Um, I thought this was very cool. And... uh, but I, I had left that husband, what, in 1981, maybe? I don't know the chronology anymore. I'm getting cool, but I got to live this one. Uh, uh, I remember um, leaving him. I had started to take alcoholism and drug counseling classes because I needed to learn about him and help him. And in that insanity and my own drinking, uh, one day there was a gun in the door by the bed and he said, why don't you just use it and I'll clean up the mess later. And I remember, that was 1982, in April, uh, March of 1982, and I wasn't sober yet. I um, called the instructor and the woman was the nicest gal and I said, I'm in a lot of trouble and I'm going to kill myself if I don't do something. Because I was going down to community hospital with Fresno every night for those classes with a thermos of food, watching the Father Martin tapes about alcoholism. And I would drive home in tears, knowing that he had just talked about me. You know, I'm selfish and self-centered. It's all about me, and I'm always on my mind. And... um I got her to enter me into the art at the time at uh, Fresno Community Hospital in downtown Fresno. And I went there for the 30-day time in April of 1982. Uh, I was angry. I was so angry. They took away my rollers for my hair. They took away my makeup. Um, they did all kinds of things that I thought were just ridiculous and I told the lady, the older lady that I roomed with, that they were brainwashing us every night. And that poor lady, I don't know where she is, how long she lived or if she's still alive, um, but I said terrible things. And uh, I played a game there. For 30 days I played a damn game. What I'm saying here is if you're new or fairly new, 
alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and it will kill you. You don't ever have to drink again if you don't want to. I had no idea what any of that meant back in those days. But I went through that 30-day thing, and I learned that if we went through this little class, and they put all the little stuff on the wall, and you read what you need to read, I'm smart, I could answer the questions the way they wanted you to answer them. And at the end of the day, I went back to that bad relationship with the husband, with the man that was going to become husband number four and husband number five. I went back and he was drinking within a few days shy of six months without a drink, I drank again and I continued to drink for three more years. It is cunning, baffling, and powerful. This program is not for those who need it. It's for those who want it. I obviously didn't want it yet. And as Scott said, I wasn't ready. You could not have told me. I would have fought you through the nail. I would have told you to go screw yourself and jump off the nearest bridge. And I, um, I drank. We did a geographical to Scottsdale, Arizona where I got a marvelous advertising job and uh, I started to go to meetings and then uh, he drank and it became very bizarre and then I drank and it got more bizarre and uh, I started calling people I knew from Fresno. I started calling people I'd met in AA. How strange is that? And so I wound up calling his mother in Porterville and telling her he's really bad you need to come get him. And I came back to Fresno. And obviously he and I got back together. And, um, but that was very, very strange uh, because by the end of 1984, I married him. And here we've been this back and forth thing for a very long time. Uh, and two very sick, sick alcoholics. And I know today that when I hear those words, I love you more than life itself. That is a sick statement. I went for that because, again, I did not know I was alcoholic really yet, but I was getting those feelers out. I heard early on, back at the yard, that once you've been to AA, it will screw with your drinking. And it was starting to. It, those little things were starting to come back to my mind. And I would hear that stuff, but I couldn't stop. Because you see, alcohol had become my lover. Alcohol was what I lived for, and it's all I knew. It's all I had on my mind. Was when I was going to do it, how much money I was going to need, and how I could get by each day. Because in the end, when I married him in 1984, and I was drinking, and he had tried to be sober. So you see, when I sobered up on March 17th of 1985, that marriage was only, what, three or four months old? And he got drunk, and he got crazy, and I wanted to kill myself. My older son had come from Texas, uh, because part of my story is that uh, both of my sons, I fought very hard for their... Uh, for custody of them and the older one my parents got fed up with me 
because there was a time when I told them when I lived in Clovis to get off my porch and don't look back. Don't darken my door again. So they told, they took Michael on a trip to Texas, which turned out to be where they were moving. And they went back to Texas where they were originally from and uh, I got papers for guardianship and the state of Texas had given them guardianship of Michael. And within a few months after that, um, I gave joint custody to Scott's death. I needed to drink. I'm an alcoholic. I had no place being a mother. I had no thoughts of being a mother. All I thought about was the damn bottle and how I was going to pay for it. So I continued to work and do what I had to do. You talk about selfish and self-centered and thinking that the world evolved around you. I was certainly the epitome of that. It is nothing to be proud of. And uh, when I came to you people and I heard you telling your stuff, I thought, holy shit, I'll never tell them everything. I'll never tell them everything. And then you lovely lady said, you are as sick as your secret. I'm pretty freaking sick. And... Um, when I did that and got into this other relationship, which became violent, once again, I knew that, I seemed to go to places that are familiar. And alcohol seems to bring all that on. And as that first sponsor ever told me, first, you also have a bad, your picker is broke. She said, your picker is just really broke. You know, and you really shouldn't even be doing this. But she was such a great lady, that first lady that was my sponsor, she died at 15 years sober of leukemia. So she was one of the first uh, people in this program that showed me that the epitome of being sober was to die sober. And that she really was uh, an outstanding person. And she showed me what you all were doing, of how it is attraction rather than promotion. So she's the woman who was always dressed nice. She worked for an insurance company. And when we sat down to do the fourth step together, you know, I thought I was going to do the shock and awe program and tell her all this crap and get her scared and get her to, you know, I was always looking for the other shoe to drop. Tell her, for her to tell me to go away or I couldn't make it here. You know, she didn't do that. She told me I love you. She said, you need to learn to love yourself. And she made me put this little damn post-it note on my mirror to say, I love you, Gideon. And it took me a long damn time to really, I said, you know, I can't do that. I can't look at it. I can't look at it. She said, as long as it's still on the mirror, she said, I'm coming by. It better be on the damn mirror. And then I call her up and ask her, like, what am I supposed to do when I'm not going to drink? Well, if you wash the dishes, if it wasn't time for a meeting, have you brushed your teeth? You know, uh, what are you going to do next? Um, she just gave me this simple stuff and it was nothing flashy had nothing to do about the clothes she wore or how she looked it was what was going on inside because the biggest part of my story is that my inside never matched my outside and I never knew what that was about until I got here I didn't know how to live life on my terms. I had no idea about living in my own skin I mean, that, who wanted to be in my skin? As far as I was concerned, it was all crap. And I already had all this negativity. And so obviously I had a lot of uh, contempt prior to investigation going on. 
And you know, the two, uh, uh, the two best characteristics of any alcoholic is defiance and delusion. I was very defiant when I got here and I was very delusional. But in those last few days, at the end of 1984 and the end of 1985, my son had come to try to stay with me from Texas. And that didn't work well. And I had gone to, uh, to go to church that morning, and I came home and he and that husband had had a terrible fight. And Michael was gone. He had called Scott's dad to put him back on the plane to send him back to Texas small world we live in and um, you know I know today that all of that that God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself with my boys because he was saving them from me he saved them from me so those choices that appeared hard and don't seem normal for any woman who has children were what had to do and had to be done for my story because I wasn't awake yet. And um, on that last day, uh, I really wasn't having visions of uh, uh, being sober. All I knew was that it was over. That no one would care if I was dead. Um, and it would probably be better off and serve everyone better if I was just gone. So I drank everything I could find, took all the pills I could take, put myself in the car, tried to go to that sponsor's house and nobody was there and then I had a phone number of a lady when she was on her way to an AA uh, birthday meeting and um, she came and found me at the corner of Willow and Shaw in the car passed out and she drove me to the, uh, she said, to the Valley Medical Center at the time where they pumped my stomach and asked me if I had tried to commit suicide and I said no I was told later if I said yes they would have arrested me and um, uh, then they walked me barefoot across the alleyway to the acute psychiatric unit. So that's where this alcoholic has to wind up. I go to the acute psychiatric unit and I thought I was in a psycho movie. People are moaning and groaning and my first thought is, you don't belong here. Oh my God, you don't belong here. Second thought is, yes you do. Yes you do. Third thought is, they're not going to let you go. And uh, it just happens that the lady that was my sponsor, a gentleman who was the minister of one of the churches in Fresno, and another lady from that church, came down to talk to me. And uh, he said, Vivian, you are worth saving. I don't recall anyone ever telling me I was worth saving. And uh, I knew then something different had to happen. I was scared to death. One, that was where I know today that I got that moment of that clarity to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. But I didn't just didn't fall down on my knees and say, oh God, I'm going to be great now. Um, I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to take direction. And I wasn't really sure that I would or I could. And um, all I know is that that lady took me to a meeting that night. And she said, I'm not going to sit by you. I'm not going to hold your hand. That meeting was a 10, 11, and 12-step meeting <laughs> over at uh, 
the Catholic school, San Joaquin Memorial on Fresno Street in Fresno. And I sat between two gentlemen who neither one of them made fun of me because I had been beat the stuff in soda. I had black eyes. I looked like crap. And we were reading on the 10, 11, and 12 steps. And then the gentleman who was supposed to take over that meeting to be the secretary was going to get married and go to Auberry and wasn't going to be able to secretary that meeting. And my sponsor goes, Vivian would love to share this secretary this meeting. We need to take a group conference. I didn't have 24 hours. And they let me do that. They let me do that. I know today, by the grace of God and the help of your people, that I stayed sober for six months because they took me in. They did not judge me. They accepted me as I was. And they let me be there. I had no idea what taking the steps was going to mean at all. And I got my start with these wonderful old timers. I cannot tell you what a blessing that is. And uh, to look back, but to let you know how insane I am without a drink, um, but I haven't had a drink since March 17th of 1985. But by 1989, I remarried that man. <laughs> And I was uh, without a drink. And um, that was in uh, April of 1989. His birthday was in May. He called me. I was working at the university, and he called me, and he was very drunk. And I recognized that. And I know right here that I can say that God does for me what I can't do for myself. He woke me up again and said, You have another surrender. You have not worked a step. You are going to drink if you don't shut up, if you don't do something. I have not taken any action except to go to meetings and try to look good. All I've done. And my sponsor would always say that you will pay the consequence. And you will have to pay the piper sooner or later. Because I kept, I kept coming to meetings, but I would walk out those doors and I did not walk it like I thought. I walked out those doors and I did Vivian's will. Because so I thought, oh, I can do this. Well, by God, I can't. And I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention around the table. I was still in my sickness from out there. And I'm, in a way, God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I had to get rid of that baggage and that crap from my past. And I was still trying to hold on out here and trying to come into you guys. And I wanted to be okay, and I wasn't. And I was so sick, and so when he drank again, and again beat the hell out of me, and, um, you know, shame on me. Shame on me. I called a woman that I had met in the program, and over a weekend when he had to leave, I packed all my stuff and left. I finally had to take a stand about my own sobriety. And I was at a little over four years sober, or four years with dry, when I started working the steps. You're new or fairly new, I don't suggest that. I suggest that you listen, try to take direction the best way you can, because all that God asks of us is to do the best we can each day. And I know in my early days I was told, if I just didn't drink that day, then I had a damn good day. 
and not go any further with it in my mind because I want to analyze it and analyze it until I beat it to death. And then you tell me, analyze it and analyze it until you're paralyzed. And then you do nothing. And nothing is where I was at almost four and a half years without a trip. And that's not a safe place to be at all. And I just know that this thing uh, in this program, I found a higher power here. I was, I'm also, I think, a recovering Baptist. Um, uh, you know, they believe in none of this and none of that. And they were no fun. And, um, and yet, uh, when I got here, and you all took me in the way you did, and all those things you said, um, you made this thing real. I didn't know how to be with real people. Because I lived in this fantasy world, don't you know? And I always imagined, and I always had these grand uh, ideas and expectations. And I learned that expectations will kill me because that is something that, you know, and then those expectations of things that don't work out my way, then I'm going I'm to be let down. And if I do that, um, all I'm going to do is harm myself. And I harm myself for a very long time. You know, wanting that wonderful marriage, wanting that wonderful whatever, and, uh, you know, it was all going down the toilet. It was always all going down the toilet, but that's the other part of coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thinking that's all those things I wanted, and I could watch you, you know, thank God for that attraction rather than promotion. I watched people with smiles on their faces. I saw relationships that some were ending, some were starting. Some had been going on for a long time. But you found a way to live. Something I did not know. And I, I became a people watcher with all of you. And I learned, and I've now known after all these years, that none of you ever lied to me. Whether you're new or you're old. The newcomers keep telling me that it's not different, Vivian. It doesn't make any difference if they've made all these new drinks in 28 years that you've never tried. The same crack happens. That you drink and you get drunk and stuff happens. You become another person. The person that God did not intend you to be. And I did, you know, um, you all have been a, a huge learning process for me. Because getting here, you know, I kept searching. Because I think I was always looking for love in all the wrong places. And, and, um, and I found it here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you loved me unconditionally. You accepted me as I was. And then, especially the women, you pulled my covers. You know, and tell me when I was full of shit. Because I was full of it in the beginning. My sponsor would tell me different things and I'd go like that and stick my tongue out of her. And uh, I was not an easy case. In fact, one of my sponsors gave me a book about the daily readings and it about hard cases. I guess I still need it. But, you know, I, you just learn. And then as I got another sponsor, um, I've learned that you have to have someone to talk to. You've got to have someone to talk to. And because I came in and I always would tell you, well, I have trust issues, as you know. And, and uh, I would find these women who I would think I was going to 
share them or something. And here they are. And uh, I had another sponsor who was my sponsor for a very long time, and she died at 27 years sober of in-state COPD. And as the years go by, you know, I've met different people in the program, and I've watched people come in and out. The scary part lately, I shared at dinner, which was lovely, by the way, um, uh, is that I've seen a lot of women coming into our women's meetings in Fresno who've had a lot of time who've gone back out. And it's very sad. But these are the things that I was told about when I got here. You know, that there will come a day when there is no defense. And um, I, I shared earlier, too, with somebody today that um, uh, early on in my story, probably about seven or eight years, I heard the word complacency. And I started to be concerned about that back then. That, um, God, how do you stay sober one day at a time and all these years and, you know, you don't get bored and, you know, think that there should be other, some other things in life. And I always said, I'm not going to make that AA thing my social life. And uh, I used to think how pathetic that was for people. And at the same time, it's not that it's totally my social life. What that first one thing used to tell me, Vivian, you're like a broken plate. You can be repaired, but you will never be the same. You will come together, but you will never be the same. But you can still have a full plate and be balanced. I had no balance in my life. I was the all-or-nothing woman. It's either going to be my way or it's not going to be anything. Everything was black and white. I knew nothing in between. And you know, that's a hard way to live. That's a really hard way to live. And then when you put expectations on other people, thinking that they should be in black and white, you know, and then when things don't go your way or you don't get what you think you want, I did not know how to relinquish my will. And, you know, I guess we just learned through uh, experience that um, I didn't have to go to jail. I used to think about those things and never got a speeding ticket. Um, but I couldn't, there was a, at one point in time when I was going to stop there that I couldn't drive the car in the garage anymore because I couldn't go in the garage or back out without hitting the garage. <laughs> you know, there are just certain things, you know, you think back. Oh, well, that's why that happened. Or how I could get up to a curb to make a left-hand turn, and I couldn't not go over the curb. You know, and I used to have to have, um, what do you call it, those little things that go on the side of your car to know where the curb was. <laughs> I'm old. That's the other part. You know what? I never thought I'd live past 40 years old. I was 37 years old when I hit the doors here. I am 65, soon to be 66. I never dreamed I'd live this long. I never dreamed that my life would be good. I had no idea. Because when I married that other man uh, for the second time in 1989, and he drank again, and that divorce was over, and I worked at the university, I stayed alone and I stayed sober, and I learned how to live like a sober human being for a change. And it was different. It was very different. And then I became a woman of case at Christmas Chase. And uh, then I had to move from where I was living. And I, and I had this gentleman that worked at the Alano Club 
who used to be one of my uh, salesmen when I worked at first on cable TV, and he helped me move. And so I went down to the Alana Club after the fact. I'd moved up to a little mobile home on some property up in the foothills. And, um, and I went down there to thank him for helping me move. Because it was he and me, not the did. I didn't involve anybody else. And, uh, and then when I got uh, all moved, I went in there. And, then I, and that was where I met what Scott said was his stepfather that had recently passed away. Um, I met Timmy. And Tim had uh, seven years and I had eight years. And, you know, we sat and talked. And being the wonderful alcoholic woman I am, I gave him my phone number. And, uh, <clears throat> and it started, you know, and that was in um, April. Everything happened in April. I was in April of 1993. And we were married in December of that year. And we were married till the day he died on February 16th of 2012 and um, I have to say that um, thanks to you people that um, you know I always thought I was going to come here and learn how to drink like a lady or be a lady or whatever I don't think I was ever a lady but um, I learned how to grow up here you taught me to be more responsible that it wasn't about looking good that it was about being there for other people through thick and thin no matter what because um, by that time I obviously had sponsored a lot of people and I used to do a lot of um, H&I work and I would go to the prison in Chalchilla every Wednesday night. I did that for quite a few years. Um, and I learned what giving it away meant. You know, we have a wonderful program that is a contradiction in terms. You know, you have to give it away to keep it. And, um, and, and I had to learn how to do that stuff. It was hard. It was very hard. Because, you know, in my sobriety, my mother passed away in 1987 when I was just a little over two years sober of breast cancer, and I went back to Texas. Um, and she was a wonderful woman. She was the woman I always wanted to be. She was not a drunk. She was a lady, and she was always appropriate. And she never said anything to me that except that you used to have more sense when you were 16. Well, that's when I started drinking. <laughs> it's funny how this all goes back to haunt you. And then my dad passed away in 1991. And my sister, I have a sister that's very sick. She's not one of us, but she's very sick. And I've not had contact with her in a long, long time. I learned through this program that sometimes relatives can be very toxic. And that there are times when you have to say, I can't go there anymore. And I've had to do that. And I, even though um, uh, it's, that's a tough thing, because I can hear my mother's words, well, she's your blood. She's your only living blood. Well, that blood just got us in a lot of trouble. And, and we were very sick together. And uh, even recently, she attempted to call me. And I told her that I'd had a decent life without her in it. I know Alcoholics Anonymous did not teach me to say that, but you helped teach me to remain calm to know what I have to do to take care of me. I have to protect me at all costs, and I could not go down that road that I did not know. And, um, you know, God loved my sponsor. She said, you did what you have to do. And, um, and you know, so, you know, when I saw that I basically had no family around me when I got here, 
and I wanted one so bad. You all became my family. I adopted you like you wouldn't believe. And when I started to sponsor women, they'd say, but they went back up, are you still going to talk to me? I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm in your life. You're done. I'm not going anywhere. Because that's what I learned how to do here. What I also learned is by sitting around the rooms and listening to all of you, because I learned to be happy for somebody else. I learned to be able to see the joy in your life so that I could know what the joy was going to be in mine. Because you see a big part of my story regarding my son, I can't tell you about it. Because I didn't know them. I did not get to raise them. I only got to see them from afar once in a while. And my drinking was so important that I could not do that. And so in my sobriety, my older son went through a divorce and called me up one day and said, Mom, my wife left me for a guy on the Internet. And I put myself in counseling, thinking, oh, my God. And, uh, and he says, I might have a degree and I have a great job, but I don't have any social skills. And I said, well, guess who your mother is? And by God, you know, I tried to encourage him that he'd gone for outside help, and he's not an alcoholic. But he he's the kid that when he got to Texas with my folks, and when I finally got sober, I tried calling. And in the background, he's telling my mother, I don't want to talk to her. I can't trust her. And he was absolutely right. Because in those days, he could not. I say I didn't want to drink. I drink to get drunk and be crazy. He was absolutely right. And he said, and I'll never be like her. And I mean, it broke my heart. But he was right. And he's the kid that had all those medical problems early on. You know, God did for him. But he couldn't do it for himself. He saved him. Did this time to be shut Okay. Well, here we are. We're at the end, and I, all I want to tell you is that it's wonderful being sober. You've got to work the steps in order to stay sober. Keep going to meetings. Pray. Work with others. Love those that are in your, that are in your life, and tell them on a regular basis that you're glad to do that. Amen. <laughs>